Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Psychcast. Did you miss me? I'm Spencer Baker, and my here back with my partner David Irvin. Yes. For the next Swedish episode. Swedish. <laughs> for the next episode of the Psychcast. This week we're going to be talking about spirituality. There's been a lot said about the conflict, maybe, or the benefits of psychology and spirituality, and where those two things meet. Uh, a lot of people say that they try to answer some of the same questions about giving meaning to life, maybe how we should act, how we should behave, how we should treat other people. Uh, psychology and religion uh, try to answer some of the same questions, and we're going to explore some of the ways in which they overlap, some of the ways that spirituality is actually psychologically healthy, and some of the research that's been done on it. So I think this is going to be a really interesting episode for all of us. Oh, yeah. Jumping right in, uh, spirituality means different things to different people, of course. A lot of the people at Bryan are Christians, but not all of them. I know no. people personally who are not Christians, and that's not a bad thing. I believe that it's the truth, but everyone has a different spiritual experience. Yep. Sometimes that takes the form of people being Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or atheist or agnostic, just figuring things out. But it could be as simple as coming from a different denomination, coming from the same denomination but having a different experience of God having a different personality that leads you to experience God in a different way. So everyone has somewhat different experiences of what it means to be spiritual. Yeah, and with that, it's kind of interesting because we looked into some studies and some different stuff about religiousness or spirituality and psychology, just how they mix and where they meet. And one of the first things that came up is addiction. It's used a lot with AA. That's one of the, like, big things they want you to have. It's like a form of a god or something that you look up to because it keeps you responsible in a way that other things can't. They have accountability partners in AA and they have, they try and have mentor, mentoree or whatever you want to call that relationships. They try and set that up. But a big thing in AA is to believe in a higher power because that gives people who feel like they're trapped a something bigger than them that's good. So there was a study done by NCBI, which does a lot of research into psychology, <laughs> mainly into like mental disorders and stuff like that. And they interviewed a bunch of people and they did some some tests and some uh, surveys. And basically they used some, some basic surveys to see where people who were addicted or formerly addicted to drugs stood with their spirituality. I think they interviewed 10 people. All of them indicated that they were religious. Now, uh, one actually made a mistake and uh, said he wasn't religious on the survey, but that was because it was on a scale of 1 to 10, and <laughs> he thought that it, you know, he, he just misread the thing. But, um, what his, a loser. <laughs> his actual recording, he, you know, he talked about, you know, being religious. So it's actually fairly common among addicts to be religious. Uh, yeah, so it, that's kind of interesting in and of itself. I think uh, tying back to spirituality there, that you see a lot of uh, addicts who are religious. And one of the first things we see in the Bible is that it's not good for man to be alone. Yep. People aren't yep. designed to live in isolation. Yep. A lot of the research that comes with addiction has been indicating more and more and more that addicts are addicts most of the time because they feel alone, and that people who are isolated are much more at risk for addiction. And whenever you integrate people into a situation where they feel safe and they feel connected with other people, then they're craving for the dr for drugs. They're craving for whatever the addicted addictive substance is goes down. Yeah, and this study was it was really cool because uh, Spencer said it helped actually reduce urges. Uh, the people said that once they started uh, becoming more spiritual, 
it helped them reduce their urges, you know, and it, there was a lot of different results because this was such a qualitative study instead of a quantitative study. Uh, there was a lot more personal, you know, stuff. There was a lot of quotes from people saying different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually like, it seems like most addicts would rather uh, perform religious things in private rather than in public. From the article, it was kind of showing that people who are addicts seem to feel like they're not accepted in the church community, but they just picked a random sample of people and all of them were religious. So it's like, you know, it it's kind of interesting because you would think that uh, if they were Christians, you know, we would want them in our community. And all of these people even indicated they were Christian. They weren't even like, it wasn't even other you know, religious backgrounds, but they had a big stigma. Some of them actually came to church high because they felt like they were being judged, because they felt like they had to or else they wouldn't be able to go to church because they would be getting driven insane by the people watching them and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, by their cravings also. Okay. So, um, And then other people, when they would relapse and stuff, they were saying that they wouldn't actually go to church at all uh, because they just try and avoid, you know, that pressure and that kind of feeling. Uh, but at the same time, those same people said that uh, what really pushed them to want to do better and wanted to want to stop was that religious drive, most of all. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they were all different, you know, like different races and stuff and different marriage statuses. So it's kind of interesting to see that they legitimately all <laughs> had to do with this. It was a random mm-hmm. sample. And uh, I think that's pretty awesome. It's powerful to see the link between people who want to get better and the tools there are to get better. Yeah and how those oftentimes come back to God. The The church comes up over and over again, whether it's in Alcoholics Anonymous or it's in people's stories of how they recovered from addiction because the church offers things that any counselor will tell you are vital for recovery, and mm-hmm. that's acceptance and accountability. We see very early on in uh, the New Testament that as the church is being formed, that there are steps taken for accountability mm-hmm. for Ananias and Sapphira with the first prime example of that. Yeah of some things aren't tolerated, but there's this blanket of love that should go in the church. And whenever we lose that, we step away from God's design. Yeah. And God didn't set up the church just arbitrarily, just because he wanted it a certain way. He knew what we needed. He knew that we needed a place of love, of unconditional acceptance. And he knew we needed a place where our faults were called out, that under that love is an understanding that we want to get better, that we want to become more like Christ, and those are the exact same principles that work for someone who is struggling with addiction or any kind of uh, psychological problem. Yeah, and uh, going with that, there's actually a therapy called ACT therapy, acceptance, uh, you know, therapy, and it's based off of doing actions, you know, being like this isn't who I am, but accepting also that certain things are flaws within you. And I think that definitely goes with the whole biblical idea of being renewed in Christ. It's like you can have the Holy Spirit in you, but you can still be a human at the same time. So you still make mistakes. And uh, yeah, just letting the, you know, the truth of the Holy Spirit hold you tight and, you know, push your goals and be what you want to do and accepting that this is your carnal flesh, but God obviously let you be in this flesh and let you be here. So it's obviously worthwhile that you're, you know, there. We are We are physical beings at the same time that we are spiritual beings. There's a part of us that's entirely physical, and there's nothing wrong with that. God yeah. likes matter. He made it. He made the universe, <laughs> and he made our bodies. Yeah. But he also uh, made the spiritual part of us, and those parts of us work together. A lot of what psychology has done has mapped out the brain and mm-hmm. the parts of the brain that correspond to motivation, 
to memory, to logic, to emotion, to um, sight and our senses. Uh, but what psychology can't map out is choice yeah. and consciousness and the things that are the spiritual gifts that God has given us, the spiritual component of us that really experiences um, him and the world that and the internal reality of you. And no science is going to explain that away because it's just something God has worked into each one of us. And being able to see that psychology not only doesn't uh, fight God in this area, psychology has not proven that the soul does not exist. Psychology has shown the beauty of what the soul can do. And um, yeah, and I mean, a lot with what you're saying is like how God made matter, you know, and how he, you know, it's a clear design, right? And that he put us in a world that is physical matter. And that means there's scientific principles. There are formulas, equations, all that kind of stuff that go into how things work and how they're put together. And uh, a big part of that is, is like if you look at most models of psychology, most models of like counseling and so on, most of it or at least a lot of it has to do with this uh, this triad, right? There's a belief, there's a action, and then there's a physiological or outside aspect, right? And so, you know, as psychologists, we know that like actions affects beliefs, which affect the environment, whereas environments affect belief, you know, so on and so forth. All of them affect each other. So, you know, if you even look at the physiological health, if you even look at like the community built by, um, by the church, it's, it's been documented that the community actually helps your physical health. So um, church going is actually linked to longer life. And it's actually also been linked with uh, people who have started going to church who had, uh, who had like heart problems and stuff like that with their inflammation and stuff like that going down. It's really kind of crazy, actually. I, I looked into the setting, and I was like, I didn't even really believe it at first, but um, I looked into some other stuff and looked up a couple other articles on it, and it's it's pretty strongly correlated that going to church actually helps your physical health. And anything that helps your physical health is going to help your psychological health. So, health, sorry. <laughs> so. Yeah, the, the physical component is never something we should uh, forget about because mm-hmm. your physical and psychological health oftentimes is a reflection, and sometimes uh, it's, it's a major contributor to your relationship with God. Yeah. Uh, God knows what you go through. God knows your, your physical problems. He knows your physical strengths. He knows your psychological problems. Um, there are a lot of people who struggle with depression, and you, you cannot struggle alone if you can turn to God. Yeah, That is the, the sure. primary lie of anyone that is told over and over in the mind of someone who struggles with depression is, I am alone. Yeah, And we know as Christians that the first thing, one of the first things God says to us is, you're not alone. I promise I will never leave you or forsake you because God wants to be with us. And God being with us reshapes the way we see just about everything else. Yeah. So, I mean, going with the whole, like the effects of church and the effects of uh, being spiritual on the person themselves, we had another study study that showed that... uh, people who went to church and more and more spiritual actually had more positive relationships with people like interact other people would say that their relationships were better than the uh, control group which was more secular people they also were not actually correlated with narcissism i was kind of surprised about this i'm kind of a cynic (laughs) and so i legitimately thought you know when i read that the uh, introduction to this article 
that it would definitely show that people in the church are way narcissistic. But they took an inventory of narcissism and they didn't check out on it. Wow. Which, yeah, which is kind of crazy because this isn't like this isn't like Facebook quiz narcissism. This is like, you know, where do you lie on a spectrum of like having narcissistic personality disorder, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So that that was pretty interesting. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it was also shown that people who went to church had more wisdom and more creativity as well. I, I thought that was pretty cool. I, you know, it's kind of a positive thing because, you know, you hear a lot of stuff about like people in the church hating psychology and people from the secular world, from the scientific world, so to speak, hating, you know, the the spiritual world. But it it really seems like more and more, the more you look at it, it really looks like they just coexist. They work together. They're, you know, they're part of the same wheel, you know. And we'll get into more later of how um, psychology and spirituality, when it comes right down to it, you can argue they answer a lot of the same questions. Yeah. But even on a on a more surface level, um, a lot of times psychology just finds out what we already knew. Yeah. What God already told us about what it means to be a person and what we should be striving after. Um, the verse that just came to my mind whenever David was describing those things is, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Not saying that you can just go after God and you'll be showered with yeah. positive character traits, but God knows what we need and how to get there. Yeah. So if psychology, um, some one of the things I disagree with is that oftentimes that secular psychology or pop psychology will say, you need to go after your uh, low self-esteem. You need to fix that. You need to convince yourself you're a good person. Yeah. Or you need to um, educate yourself in a specific way. You need to work on specific psychological traits that will fix your life. I mean, really, we know the source of those things. We know what, who the wellspring of wisdom is. We know the ultimate beauty that inspires our creativity. And we can get to him in a lot of different ways. There's not just one way to inspire yourself to be creative. There's not just one um, set of wise things. You don't just read the Bible to get wise. But we know that without God as the foundation, then we'll always be missing part of the person we were meant to be. And going after the person we're meant to be in psychology is self-actualization, whereas going after the ideal self in Christianity is more than that. It's being conformed to the image of Christ. Not my ideal self, but the ideal self. And that really, it takes everything to a whole new level, really. Yeah, it does. Learning, you know, being that I'm a psychology major, I have plenty of psych classes. So learning about all these psychologists from the past, you know, and what their goals were and what they were trying to learn, you know, especially people like Carl Rogers. It's like they're trying to figure out like what makes a good person. A lot of it is like they're really trying to peer into the mind of God, really. It's like they're trying to find the science behind what the universe is. And uh, it's interesting because it just never matches up. You can look at any theory and it doesn't completely match up to the real world. But if you apply any theory to biblical knowledge, it automatically makes the theory click. Like it almost like filters through all the junk that the psychologist put on it and makes it work. You think he's joking, but he's not. (laughs) I'm really not. Like it's just like it's an instant filter. I mean, you honestly, you can just take it and test it with the Bible. And it it honestly, it shows. It shows that uh, the Bible really knows what it's talking about. Shocker. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, all, all truth is tied to the ultimate truth, and it's great. One of the other benefits um, that I researched on um, the benefits of spirituality was on patience, mm-hmm. specifically a study done by uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, because they have a graduate school in psychology. Mm-hmm. Uh, higher levels of spirituality are tied to higher patience and stress resistance. 
So we talked about stress in the first episode of the Sidecast. So if you're still having problems with stress, we have another solution for you. Get with God. Um, yeah. The There's a quote from the study itself that I thought was really, really uh, powerful. It's a little technical, but it did a good job of explaining what they discovered. Uh, religious appraisals and reappraisal during meaning-making are highly relevant to the virtue of patience. Now, what that mean it means is looking at your situation and appraising it and reappraising it, looking at it over and over again because you're trying to make a meaning out of it. So whenever you go through something that is traumatic or even something that's just generally stressful, we want to make sense out of it. We want to think, why did this happen? We want to think, this is a bummer or this is like, even this is heartbreaking. And we need to know why to some extent. And spirituality gives us a framework through which we can see meaning behind things. We can see meaning behind the things that happen to us. The quote goes on to say, um, it seems reasonable to assume that the same process may be operating during the event, thus affecting patients in the midst of suffering. So as you grow closer to God, you develop this, this character of patience, not as a result of just becoming a better person, but understanding that there's putting it in its place, not blowing whatever it is out of proportion, because even the worst things on earth become light in light of eternity. Paul calls them these light momentary afflictions. And if you know anything about Paul's life, he went through beatings and shipwrecks and imprisonment. He went through things that we would never consider light afflictions. But he said, compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ, he was be able to be content in any circumstance. And that's exactly what this study found. This is pr- exactly what psychology is telling us right here because it's the same principle that applies. Yeah. This, it's the same truth that's demonstrated in the Bible, and it's so amazing. It really is. And I mean, that may feel discouraging to some people because you're like, well, I'm a Christian and I don't feel that way. You know, it's like, but if you look at like the whole of the Bible, the whole context of the Bible, Paul isn't saying that because he didn't suffer. Just like David wasn't, you know, writing all those lamenting Psalms because he didn't, you know, he was considered a man after God's own heart and he still struggled and he, you know, but the difference is, the difference between not having God and having God is it gives you this hope that supersedes any of the problems that you have, any depression, any anxiety, anything. Basically with God, it's like you can be literal dirt and God can breathe on you and suddenly you can be the pinnacle of creation. There's uh, The quote finishes with, those who score high on spiritual transcendence, basically an understanding of spiritual things and like applying those to their life may be more likely to make benevolent religious appraisals and reappraisals. So seeing their situation as, maybe it's still bad, but adding meaning to it. For example, that God is teaching them something through the suffering, or that the suffering is redemptive. So that word redemptive is tied to a concept in psychology called uh, hardiness. The Mm -hmm. idea of having the personality trait where even if bad things do happen to you, or even if you're under a lot of stress, you've you've developed a sense of, being okay with it, that you don't fall apart and your psychological state doesn't fall apart because you understand it's not the end of the world. The end of the world (laughs) will happen, but when it does, God is going to be in control of it. It's going to be on his terms. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's all tied to the idea of meaning-making, meaning-making, making making a meaning out of the things that happen to you, and I think that's just another way of phrasing what hope looks like. Yeah, I really, I would agree. I think some of the stuff is necessary. Not saying that you need anything more than the Bible. But I feel like having these studies and stuff is very necessary because I feel like we lose track of a lot of what these words mean 
just in the context of what we think the social idea of what those words mean. So I, I think this whole meaning-making thing, it gives you a little bit of a different perspective on what hope is. I've sat through all kinds of sermons where the, they were talking about faith and hope and love <laughs> and being with Jesus. And all those things are great and important, but whenever you hear them the same way, then they can lose some of their meaning, just like David was saying. So whenever we see, oh, by the way, the scientific literature and the studies that are being done, totally independent, like halfway independent or totally independent of the Bible, are confirming the things we already know. So it adds faith in um, the things that God is doing and the things that God can do that he's already promised us. I just remembered something. Um, Actually, I forgot to put this in. There was a study on faith, actually, that showed that people with faith were far more capable of getting through traumatic events. There were, you know, people who had faith in higher powers or something like that. There was a man who uh, his, his daughter, I believe, had been killed, and he actually met the murderer in jail, and he, you know, he forgave him, and he went through a whole thing with him. And uh, because of that, there was a study done on it, basically. And the study was just showing that there's all these different case studies of people who are spiritual, who have faith, and it breeds a different sort of like being in them. And I think this goes along with the whole hope thing as well. But I'm sorry, I forgot to put that in. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a good one. And love, you could make a lot of statements about that, about interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. There are entire ways of looking at psychology that are all social, that are all, yeah. that basically say, um, it's called systems theory, that the mm-hmm. system you are in determines the kind of person you are. I don't agree with it, but there's a lot of truth, there's a lot of truth in it. Yeah, there's the, some nuggets. The environment <laughs> does a lot of, a lot to shape you. And the sheer power of love, especially unconditional love in the family, unconditional love um, in friendships, unconditional love in romantic relationships, unconditional love in a community, is what people crave and people will never stop craving. Yeah. And if you if you look at the Bible too, um, you can find that God actually has all of those for us. Mm-hmm. In Greek, it only says agape, but the metaphors are almost endless for how God loves us. He loves us as a father. He loves us as a brother. He loves us as a lover. You know, mm-hmm. he loves us as we're his uh-huh. bride, you know. He's family to us. We're his congregation. We're his church. We're his community. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can just see that uh, all these forms of love that, like, the humanists talk about, like, you know, having the unconditional positive regard, what we would call agape love, right, Mm -hmm. in a Christian setting. Um, In all these different settings that we consider in psychology to be the best way Mm -hmm. are exactly what God says he is. And I think that's pretty cool. (laughs) So it it works for me. It's incredible. (laughs) And you can look it up if you... If you ever wonder, if you're ever wondering about um, something that God has said, then you can oftentimes look up a study. Um, not all the time. There are some studies oh, that yeah. you would dis- I would disagree with. Um, sometimes it's a problem of methodology. There are some studies that have been done on spirituality that I just frankly wouldn't quote because I think yeah. they weren't done very well. They were done yeah. from a biased perspective. The numbers didn't really say what they were trying to make them say. But there are an equal number of studies, perhaps even more, that are also made with an agenda on yeah. another side affirming things that I don't think should be affirmed, yeah. um, making claims, pretty sometimes very sweeping claims about um, what's right or what's normal or what works that I just couldn't agree with. Yeah. And oftentimes it's a problem of how the studies were done and based on the uh, perspective of the person doing the studies. 
you have to be careful with what you look at, just like you have to read scripture with a critical eye um, of making sure that you're interpreting it the right way. Yeah. You have to imply that same level of interpretation to um, the psychology you read and the psychology you try to understand. Yeah, I've definitely found that a lot because I feel like anytime I go into a study or reading any article or even reading a Bible, I have to make sure that I leave my expectations at the door. And I even try and leave the writer's expectations at the door and try and just see what the text is telling me, you know. I mean, I know that uh, most of our Bible teachers here would be proud of that statement, but it's really true for psychology as well. Because the author of a text can be saying one thing and the data he gets can be saying completely different thing. Yep. <laughs> so. <laughs> so if you run into something, a study in psychology, which I hope you do, because if you do, that yeah, means you're researching. It's a great idea. <laughs> which means you're probably a better student than me. <laughs> but it means that like digging into what, um, what we've learned through science and you come upon something that doesn't seem to match up with the Bible, that's something I would bring. First of all, I'd love to hear about it because I love cases like that. Yeah. Yeah, um, trying, trying to understand them, um, trying to make sense of them, trying to see, okay, does, does this change based on my interpretation of the Bible? Should my interpretation of the Bible change? Not that the truth of Scripture will not and can't be contradicted by anything true. But oftentimes our interpretation of it can be a little bit off. Yeah. And if it is, then maybe the science can show you where your, your views of God might even be a little bit flawed. And yeah. that can be what God uses to draw you closer. Or you can talk to someone in the psych department who's smart. <laughs> like us. Not me. No, okay, not me either. <laughs> you could talk to, you talk to someone about it who is intelligent, and you can figure out, okay, is this something I'm even willing to trust? Yeah. So it's, a, it's an important exercise of your critical thinking skills, <laughs> all part of becoming an informed human being. And a better Christian, too. I like those. Yes. <laughs> your, your health as a human being and your health as a Christian are inextricably tied together. Another thing is I wanted to talk about the other side of spirituality, the side that is maybe not all that healthy. Yeah. Um, another study I found in the Journal of Spirituality and, Christian, and Clinical Psychology was a study on what's called spiritual bypass. So the study came up with a metric, a, uh, basically an inventory, a survey, for determining uh, what's called spiritual bypass. And that's when instead of dealing with your problems, uh, using spirituality, for example, a traumatic experience, uh, appraising and reappraising and meaning making, like we were talking about earlier, you basically excuse it. You base it. You say something like, um, "I'll pray and it'll be better," or you think, um, "This is this is God God's business. I won't think about it." Or using spirituality as an excuse to just accept things that happen yeah, to you yeah. instead of like trying to make them better. Instead of dealing with emotional problems, you just decide that. They, you push them out of the way using spirituality as an excuse. And I thought that was a good example of the science finding emotionally unhealthy ways of being spiritual. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, this has been done so many times before, so many ways. Uh, you just look back through the, the church and you can see plenty of times that people have ignored things. Or I mean, that's why a lot of the problems have happened in the church because people have just let things happen that they know are wrong because they think God will take care of them. And God does take care of us, but you have to consider that God says that we're his hands and feet, we're his action, we're his, we're his body. So we're doing all the work for him. And I mean, that doesn't mean all the pressure's on you, but it does mean that you have to do what you know to do. <laughs> so there's, um, and like I said, there's entire uh, systems theory in psychology that talks about the environment over and over again. And that changing the environment 
can change the person. Yep. And as Christians, we are entrusted with a, a, a call. Um, a lot of people go back to uh, the Great Commission when they talk about what Christians should be doing. I like to go back even further than that. Whenever Jesus said in one of the last things he said before he, he went to the cross is, I have, you've seen the great things I've done, but you will do greater things than this. Yeah. Which is pretty incredible to think about. I know I'm not, I haven't done anything greater than Jesus, but what he's saying is there are so many of us. There are so many Christians and there was one of him and we are supposed to carry his life to everyone. Yeah. So right then and there, we're given a call to extend the love, the unconditional positive regard of Christ yeah. to the world, yeah. not bypass things, not cast a blind eye to people, not cast a blind eye to our own problems. Yeah. Being a Christian is not an excuse not to get therapy. Being a Christian is not an excuse to not learn how to take care of your own mental health. Yeah. Being a Christian is not an excuse to discount what you don't agree with, to simply bypass it in your mind. Yeah. Being a Christian is your call to do exactly those things. I, I think that, uh, yeah, something a lot of people miss about, uh, about Christianity is that God's called the counselor, you know, he is a counselor and that doesn't mean the same thing that it means now, but to give counsel means to give advice to, you know, it's to take some care of somebody's spirit, take care of somebody's soul, their decisions, you know? And, uh, I, I think we need to take that into account when we're thinking about like how psychology works with spirituality. We need to remember that God didn't call us to be separate from all these things. He called us to be a part of these things. He didn't call us to run away from other people who have problems or to act like we don't have these problems, you know? So. And it comes right down to the uh, the topic that we talk about a lot here at Brian, integration, mm-hmm. bringing together two things into a united whole. That's oh, what integration yeah. <laughs> means. We have an entire class called Methods and Models of Integration of Psychology and Spirituality. Yeah. Which is the most impressive title for a class. It is so I, impressive. I have yet taken. Yeah. And it's also a fantastic idea because integration applies to every science, to every discipline. So um, to my friends who are math majors, integrate math and spirituality. Yeah. To my friends who are business majors, how does being a Christian change the way that business should occur? To my friends who are uh, biology majors, how does the complexity of life reflect the wonder of God? No matter what you're studying, no matter what you're interested in, you can you can integrate it with your faith. Yeah. You can come, you you can talk to whoever is willing to listen about how incredible what you learn is and how it points back to God. I know we definitely talked about this. Uh, me and Chase talked about this in the integration episode of uh, of the Weekly Bugle. I don't uh, think that's out yet, but that is a thing that's probably coming. So, um, <laughs> Jesus and the nerds, <laughs> but yeah, uh, God calls us to, you know, do whatever we do to the best of our ability. And that means to do it in a Christly manner because Christ did everything perfectly and God does everything perfectly. So that means everything, you know, when God calls us to be Christians, he's not just calling us to, you know, you know, go to Puerto Rico for a, a week or something. I'm not saying I'm not talking bad on that at all. I think that's great. But God also calls us to be whatever we are, but as a Christian, you know, I, you know, I've been having a really hard time uh, exactly deciding what I'm going to do, you know, being a counselor and being a Christian. But really what I've come to is that like, I'm a counselor who is also a Christian, you know, and that influences everything I do in counseling. 
the way I counsel is defined by the fact that I'm a Christian. It's not, you know, I can't look at something that uh, Freud said and find ultimate truth in that. I have to find ultimate truth in the Holy Spirit and in the Word of God. And uh, that's, a, that's a lot of what you learn in our integration class. It's, it's one of my favorite classes from the psych department. So, And it's open to take if any of you want to take yeah, it. Yeah, you could just take but, it. Uh, just, just do it. Just do it. It's do fun. It. <laughs> okay. So um, that's about all we had to talk about today. Yeah. So just keep that with you. Keep yeah. with you the idea that there are definite benefits to spirituality, more than just what we talked about here. But that was just a, a taste of all the benefits yeah. that being spiritual can bring you a little bit of the explanation behind meaning-making, hope, love, faith, and their relationship to being an emotionally healthy person. Uh, the idea that um, it's not an, spirituality is not an excuse to throw psychology or research or science by the wayside. And that in the end, our goal, your goal, uh, every Christian's goal, is to bring together what they do and who they are. That what you do and who you are should be tied together, and that's where you're going to find ultimate joy. Yeah. And what you do being a reflection of Christ and uh, because that's who you are ultimately in him. Yeah. yeah. Um, something I have to add, if you want to, you can go to our Facebook or Twitter. I know this is random. Um, no, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and send us a question. Hold on one second. I'm actually pulling one up. We only got one question. I was kind of sad about this, but I, I think it'll be fun anyways. Let me To the person who sent us that quick. question, you are li- being like Jesus. <laughs> We appreciate you and yeah. your presence. Yeah, you are being like Jesus. The rest of you, <laughs> I forgive you. Don't let it happen because again. Jesus would. Jesus would. Jesus would forgive you. Don't let it happen again. Come up with questions, even if they're stupid. So, uh, speaking of stupid questions, <laughs> oh dear. Um, I don't know if y'all know, but uh, Nathan, he graduated last year. I love Nathan. Yeah. He sent us a question. This is the only question we got. This is why you guys need to send us questions, Mm -hmm. because I know you're listening. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, (laughs) so here's the question. If all the famous psychologists were put into a pit and fought Highlander style, who would win? (laughs) Let's begin. (laughs) So my immediate bet would be on the behaviorists, because the behaviorists were tough, no-nonsense kind of people. Yeah, they were. So uh, maybe uh, Skinner, maybe Skinner. Uh, Pavlov technically a physiologist, but contributed to psychology. Yeah. And he was Russian. So it's hard to bet against a Russian. I, I honestly, my money would probably be on Watson, the guy who did the Baby Albert experiment. Uh, he was he was a jerk. He would fight dirty. He was a jerk. He would fight dirty. He would do anything. Hmm. That's how you win in a Hunger Games style thing. Yeah. Or Freud, because he really, he knows how to get in touch with his dark side. Oh, yeah. He knows all about the unconscious. So, hmm. Yeah, probably Watson would be a good choice. Watson would the be a pretty good choice. The problem is most of them are really old. Yeah. So well, I mean, they were young at one point. Most yeah. of them are really dead. You say that. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure if I believe it. it <laughs> I mean, Freud's got a clear disadvantage because he smoked a lot of cigars. Yeah, but he, he had a lot of health problems. And did a lot of the cocaine. <laughs> Much so. cocaine. Um, I can't think of any others that would be particularly good at it. Mm. Most of them are like really dry academic types. Yeah. So I feel like yeah. maybe a whole group of them would band together and fight against the, and that group would be the one that won. But, uh, ooh, Milgram. 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 Does he get to bring his, like, shock apparatus? Yeah, I mean, it didn't work. It wasn't actually a thing. It wasn't actually a shock apparatus, so. 
I mean, I want Philip Zimbardo to win. Zimbardo would be He's great. He's slowly becoming my favorite psychologist. I mean, you know, if you you've probably heard of Zimbardo, he's one of the biggest, you know, like names that you've probably heard of in psychology because he he did the Stanford Prison Experiment. He it was it was kind of bad, and by kind of I mean it was bad. But he's actually a cool guy. Mm-hmm. He's got some books out, The Lucifer Effect. You should read that, mm-hmm. anyone out there. It's really good. Um, I don't necessarily agree with all of it. But anyways, he's a really cool guy, and he is completely willing to uh, give in to his uh, role. You yes. know, Whatever the role is, whatever that's, the role is he will, commit, it, to he will it. commit to it. If he is in a mm-hmm. full-out death match, he would probably be like, this is where I am, and this is who I am mm-hmm. now. So I like all of that. So uh, the official answer, official sitecast answer is John B. Watson. Yeah, definitely Watson. Behaviorist, fights <laughs> dirty, young man, strapping, yeah. and dangerous. Very dangerous. He's willing to abuse a baby. Yes. Just <laughs> so just think what he'll be willing to do to the rest of them. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that question. <laughs> so if any of you have questions about like real psychology, <laughs> then uh, feel free to send those in to us as well. I mean, I'm fine with these two. These <laughs> are happy. these I'm are happy fun. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Keep them coming. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, okay. we really appreciate you guys listening. We've actually, uh, apparently, the Sightcast is the most downloaded uh, podcast on J- WJBC The Roar. I'm going to cry. So thanks, guys. I mean, really, thanks. Um, we'll talk to you next time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs>